Okay. Well, uh, Rick Scamfer saw me just before church, and he says, hey, I've never heard a sermon on Jude before, so I guess we'll preach on that today. And so I'll, what I want to do is take three Sundays to do the, a series on Jude. And uh, Today we'll do verses 1 through 4. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will do verses 5 through 16. Then the following Sunday, 17 through 25. It's just one chapter letter. And thanks, James, for doing a summer series of going through the summer stroll down the Roman road. And then for David Gutierrez, thank you for bringing us the word of God a couple times this summer as well. Jude is very power-packed with a lot of stuff in this one chapter. These verses have encouragement, prayer, condemnation, several Old Testament history lessons, an extra-biblical reference to the book of Enoch, and then climaxes with a beautiful doxology to our Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you this week to read through the book of Jude at least once, maybe more than once, and maybe have a commentary nearby as well. Our church library actually has uh, several Jude commentaries in it. In fact, one is in the window right now that I'll quote from later. Now let's hear the word of the Lord from Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about a common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people who prefer pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Twenty-two years ago today was a regular Monday. I was preparing to fly to Boston on business, but my boss called me into the office and said, don't go yet. You need to be here for a site-wide meeting. And later I found out that site-wide meeting was because several of my coworkers were going to be laid off. Well, I went home later that day, and I felt like I was supposed to take the red eye that night, and I just could not take the red eye. I was too emotional. So I decided to reschedule my flight for the next morning, Tuesday morning. Well, Tuesday morning, I woke up and was ready to head the airport until my son came running into the bedroom and said, Dad, have you seen that a plane flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center? And as devastating and shocking as that is, I still was planning to go to the airport because I had to be back in Boston the next, or that day. And then, all of a sudden, we heard about the United Flight 175 flying into the South Tower. And almost immediately, I got a call from my VP asking if I was okay and where I was, because he thought I'd be in Boston. 
And I told him I was home, and he said, well, just stay there for now. And of course, we all know nobody could fly after that. Well, as Tuesday 9-11 unfolded, we heard of two other planes and many souls going into eternity. I thought about all the what-ifs. What if I had gone on the red-eye the night before like I was supposed to? on the United out of L.A. to Boston. For you see that late night LAX to Boston flight I would have taken would land in the terminal and then that same flight usually would turn around, that same airline, airplane, would turn around and fly back from Boston to L.A. What if I had seen these people in the terminal? That kept going through my mind that were getting ready to board that plane that would eventually go into the, the South Tower. What if I had seen the terrorists that just kept playing in my mind? But one thing that kept cycling over and over in my mind was, how could the terrorists just silently creep into the United States unnoticed, waiting for the opportunity to reap destruction? As we open the letter of Jude today, he tells us in verse 3 that he was planning and very eager to write about our common salvation. But he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Look at the words in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Jude wanted to write a letter about their common salvation but what is common salvation? Maybe Jude was thinking of common salvation like we find in Romans, as James has preached on the whole summer. On Roman Road, Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. These are just three of the many salvation truths that Jude may have been thinking about with our common salvation. Perhaps he was planning to write a letter like Romans, but then the Holy Spirit told him to write a letter that condemned the acts of those in the church who opposed the faith, and he warned the faithful believers to stay strong and, and amid moral and spiritual crisis. This letter may provide the most dramatic depiction of heresy in the entire Bible. What Jude says is a matter of urgency for Jude's time, as well as important for every generation. Thus, if I had a big idea for today, it would be Jude wanted to share our common salvation, but he must contend with false revelation. In every generation, it's vital, along with Jude, to contend for the faith, to heed the warning, and to keep the faith. And so that's really what we're going to be doing over the next few Sundays. For background, the author introduces himself in verse 1 as Jude or Judas. 
a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There are three Judases mentioned in the New Testament. Jude identified himself, though, in verse 1 as the brother of James, which means he likely aligns himself with the family of Jesus because there are no other Judases mentioned in the Bible that have a brother named James. Look in Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3. They record the names of the brothers of Jesus as James, Judas, along with Joseph and Simon, and at least two sisters who are not named. We see that the Gospels record the name of Judas, but in English translations, they shorten it here in the book of Jude to, Russ, or to Jude, just, just like shortening Russell to Russ. In this case, it's probably for the same reason, though, that they shorten the name to Jude from Judas, because who would want to name a child Judas with people thinking about Judas Iscariot? Like his older brother, James, who also wrote the book of James, Jude did not place his faith in Jesus while the Lord was still alive. John 7, 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. Now I wonder what it was like to grow up with the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. Did, there ever, did their parents ever say, why can't you be more like Jesus? I wonder, I, I've even said that to my sons, I think. I hope not, but uh, what about when working through a problem in the family, someone might say, what would Jesus do? There must have been pain behind Jesus' words in Matthew 13, 57, when he said, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. Only after the crucifixion and the resurrection did the scales fall off of Jude's eyes and he became a follower of his brother, Jesus. Notice he does not play the family card with Jesus. The familial relationship with James and Jesus becomes secondary to their spiritual relationship with Jude enjoys with Jesus. So he leads with, I am a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. Dick Lucas, one commentary, says, no one is too privileged to be exempt from the need to be converted. No one's too privileged. Neither Jude nor James nor Jesus' half-brothers nor Mary as the mother of Jesus. No one is so privileged as to bypass the need for salvation. Now notice, Jude encourages him by his introduction. And I think it is very important because he's going to have to say a lot of hard things coming up over the next few weeks. And, and it's going to cause them to come up short. And he will use a lot of triplets throughout the letter. You know he was a good pastor because he used a lot of triplets, a lot of three points in his sermons. He starts out in verse 1 with called, beloved, and kept. He begins very clearly to those who are called. You are the called of God, he says. 
This is a call that theologians have dubbed irresistible. This is a call not set apart from human will. This is when, he, uh, when this call came, you were awakened out of your deadness. It is what our Lord was talking about when he said in John 6.45, Everyone who has heard the Father comes to me. When you hear this call, you come. This is so wonderful. This is the foundation why we are so secure. Our security is not found in anything we do any more than our salvation is found in anything we do. Our security is found in the fact that from eternity past, we have been chosen. And we are chosen in eternity unto glory. We have been chosen to be conformed to the image of Christ. We have been chosen to be made righteous. We have been chosen to enter into the glories of heaven and worship there forever and ever. That is what I describe as common salvation. And the next triplet, the readers are called the beloved. As Benji quoted his seminary professor in on Colossians back in June, to be called beloved means that God loves you as if you were his only child, his exclusive one and only child. It means that the eternal love that the God the Father has always had for his one and only Son, Jesus, he now has for you, not just as if you were his only child. Benji went on to say, the word beloved is a perfect passive participle in Greek. I know that doesn't probably give you goosebumps, Benji said, but it's very significant. It's the kind of grammar that give you goosebumps. When Paul uses the perfect passive participle in Greek, here's what it means. The perfect tense is something that happens in the past with the result continuing on to the present. And then it's passive, which shows that we did not do it ourselves. We did not make ourselves beloved. Rather, God sets his heart on us. He chooses us. He makes us his beloved. The perfect passive participle shows us that God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. Doesn't that just blow your mind? If you are in union with Christ, if you are one of his chosen people, he never started loving you. He has always loved you in Christ in eternity past. If you are in Christ, he loves you unconditionally. The perfect passive participle shows us that there is nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving you. The reason he chose you is because he loves you and he has always loved you. The word beloved reminds me of what Moses said about Pastor Benji. Well, actually his namesake, the founder of the tribe of Benjamin. You may remember when Moses was ready to die and he was expressing his blessings on the nation of Israel. This is what he said about Benjamin in Deuteronomy 13:12. The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety, for his she he shields him all day long. The one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. It's a wonderful picture of his everlasting love. 
The one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. When God says it, he absolutely means it. This is the love, a love that will not let me go. Even when we make a mess of it like Peter did, he doesn't let us go. You are called, you are beloved, and you are kept for Jesus. Here again, Jude uses the perfect passive participle. Okay, more goosebumps, everybody. The saints have been kept, guarded by God the Father with the present and here and permanent result that they are the objects of his permanent watchful care. God the Father is keeping them guarded for Jesus Christ. Our Lord prayed in John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your word. Keep, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be even as we are. We, a Greek scholar, said, Our Lord committed the saints into the watchful care of God the Father. He is keeping them for Jesus Christ, so they might continue to be forever the possession of Jesus Christ. Keep them for Christ is so important to Jude that he brings it up again in the doxology, even at the end of the letter in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you and me from stumbling. So this is so encouraging because God the Father is keeping, keeping us. He is a keeping God. He is actively helping us to persevere. As we've just looked at our first set of triplets, the called, the beloved, and, and kept for Christ. He prays for them. Essentially, this is what he says. Like you, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, and I am praying for you. And this is what I'm praying. Mercy, peace, and love. Another set of triplets. The mercy of God is the spring and fountain of all the good that we have or hope for. Mercy, not only the miserable and messed up, but also for the guilty. God's mercy can sustain us in times of difficulty. Hebrews 14.6 Mercy, uh, next to mercy is peace. The perfect peace beyond all understanding, which we have from the sense of having obtained mercy from God. His peace can give us his peace can give us all understanding which we have from the sense of having obtained mercy. His peace can give us subtle calmness when evil abounds. And from peace springs love. His love can protect and assure believers in the face of peril. Only God can supply every need and every challenge that we face. And Jude doesn't just ask that they might know it, but that it might be multiplied to you. That God multiplies his blessings that he showers on us. When I think of multiplying blessings, I think of the hymn, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. He added, to added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known to men. 
For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. The second verse says, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. And I know some of you are just itching to sing the chorus. So why don't you join me in the chorus? His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Having greeted and prayed for them, Jude goes on in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to sound the warning to write appealing to you. Jude wanted to share our common salvation, but must contend with false revelation. Now Jude recognizes it's going to take some backbone to heed his appeal. In fact, the verb he uses to contend is an interesting word. Chuck Swindoll once said, the word to contend in Jude 3, ep agonizomai, means to exert intense effort on behalf of something. If you look closely at this Greek word, you'll see the root from which we get our English word to agonize. It means to strive earnestly to make vigorous efforts to endeavor to struggle. The Greek word is often referred to the struggle between two athletes who sought the same prize. Jude pled with Christians to struggle and expend themselves as they defended doctrinal truth. But let's not misunderstand what Jude is saying here. He's not encouraging a spirit of contentiousness. Among those to which he writes, it does not mean the same as being contentious. The contentious person is prone to strife is prone to argument, is prone to be quarrelsome, is prone to dispute. We must be ready to fight for our beliefs, but not with physical weapons, of course, but with the spiritual weapons of knowledge, of wisdom, of faith, of hope, and of love. We have an example of needing to contend for the faith in our own denomination, a few years ago, a pastor and denominational seminary professor in Minnesota started to teach open theism, which in a very simple term means that God may not know what will happen in the future. Well, one of our former pastors wrote and delivered a paper at a denominational meeting to contend for the faith against this theology right within our own denomination. This is not for the faint-hearted. This is not for the fearful. This is going to make a real challenge to you because Jude is appealing to you to contend for the faith. What did Jude mean when he wrote about the faith? The faith doesn't refer to our personal faith of individual, individual believers, but to the Christian faith taught by the apostles 
contained in Scripture, repeated in hymns, and confessions such as the New City Catechism that we quoted from this morning, and creeds throughout history, the central doctrines of the faith. This is what Thomas Manton, a 17th century Puritan, wrote about the faith. In fact, this is one of the commentaries that we have in, in the church library. It's up in the window. Faith, this faith, was entrusted to them by God. It was given to them so that they might keep it. It is not an invention they made up by something that they were given. It was not discovered by us, but is entrusted to us by God himself. It was given to us that we will keep it safely for posterity. It was given once, and it will never be altered or changed. It was given once for all to the saints. Now notice in verse 4, Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. NIV says, Have secretly slipped in among you. It means to slip into something sideways, or maybe even sneaking through the side door over there. Or like sliding into the pool without making ripples or even a splash. But their presence doesn't take God by surprise. Because you will notice that their condemnation was written about long ago. Jude describes these people whom have crept in in several ways. Ungodly in verse 4. Dreamers in verse 8. Hidden reefs. Waterless clouds. Fruitless trees in verse 12. Wild waves, wandering stars, and lastly, for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever. This is one way to say that they are going to hell. We will look more at these descriptions and condemnations next week. Their character will be seen in their behavior and will be revealed in their beliefs. So he issues the warning Paul also issued a warning in Acts 20, 29 and 30. After I leave you, fierce wolves will come in, rising from among you and yourselves. When Peter writes in 2 Peter and John writes in 2 John, they are dealing with the very same thing. Now why would we be surprised if we did not face, at this point in history, the very same issues? As a side note, I think about when I hear people say, if only we can go back to what it was like in New Testament times, in the New Testament church. Well, the New Testament church had many problems as well as many joys as we have today. All because the New Testament church was filled with the same kinds of people, the same kinds of messy people like you and me. Now, back to Jude. How will we identify those who have creeped in? Well, he says in verse 4 that they will pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They have taken unwarranted liberties with grace. Chuck Swindoll said, What Jude is saying is that they have taken grace and have transposed it like a musical term into another key. They have taken grace in all its beauty, forgiveness, and love, and turned it into unrestrained sin. In other words, they will say something like, because of grace, you can do whatever you want to do without any fear at all. 
Their strategy will be to replace the grace of God with license. They engaged in callous, guilt-free, sensual indulgences, all in the name of God's grace. In other words, they brought in moral depravity of the worst kind. The gospel call to sinners is, come as you are, right? Come as you are, all who are weary and sinful and messed up. Come to me. But the ongoing call is not, oh, and by the way, you can stay as you are. The gospel, when it's perverted, usually provides a smokescreen for immorality. It goes like this. God loves us, therefore everything goes. But Romans 6 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? These people would say yes. But Paul answers, no way, may it never be. Please don't go out and say that we do not believe in grace. We do. Jude starts the book with mercy and he ends the book with mercy. And we want to show mercy to people as well, just as we have received mercy. John Owen, another Puritan pastor, said, The doctrine of grace may be turned into wantonness, but the principle cannot. While some people can twist the idea of God's love into an excuse for sin, the real experience of God's love makes us want to please him rather than indulge our sinful behaviors. Now our time is gone, and it's not hard to find contemporary illustrations, but I'll leave you to think through some of that. And how can we prepare ourselves to contend to, for the faith? By knowing God through prayer and his word, by studying individually and in community, and to know what you believe, the reality of biblical Christian doctrine. Are you involved in regular study of God's word? Are you involved in Sunday school class or small group to study in community and have accountability? Are you showing up at Awanas and listening to the kids share their verses that they have memorized? And along the way, you might memorize it as well. With all this, we will be able to better contend for the faith. Perhaps you're here today and wondered about this common salvation you heard about. What about this mercy and peace and love and what it means to be a saint or a follower of Christ? Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, or still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus died in our place for our sins. And you can have that common salvation if you confess your need for Jesus as a Savior. Call out to him. If you want to know more, you can come up and talk to me after service as well. In closing, the command to contend for the faith and to hold these things with boldness is necessity of holding them with gentleness. Let us not get up on our high horse with a spirit of contentiousness. Jude, as a shepherd, reminds us of God's calling, his love, and his keeping power. And he prayed for mercy, 
peace and love. But he can't sit idly by and watch the internal destruction of the flock. The letter offers a strong, striking, prophetic word from God through his servant to the saints, to us, urging us to wake up and contend for the faith. Jude wanted to share our common salvation but must contend with false revelation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. We are humbled before it, Lord. We tremble before its warnings. We hold on to its promises. We hear what you have to say to us through your servant, Jude. We're in awe of the wonder of your calling and the wonder of your keeping power and how, can, and how we need your mercy and your peace and love. We don't want, Lord, to fail in our generation or to do, we want to do exactly what your word says, Lord. So come and wake us up. Help us to stand up as a church in our day to take the place that you have appointed for us and to live as you have designed. For Christ's sake we ask. Amen.